Hey there, thank you so much for being a part of our Big Time Talker podcast family. Sure to appreciate you listening. I'm Burke Allen, live in our studios in Washington, D.C. And the Big Time Talker is a service of our friends at speakermatch.com. Speakermatch is the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. And now that the pandemic is in our rearview mirror, in-person meetings and events are coming back. If you are a meeting planner looking for a speaker or you're a platform speaker looking for a stage, find one another with our friends at speakermatch.com. We love to talk to talent, and today we're talking to a talent who's become a talent coach. You may remember him as a finalist on season two of NBC Television's The Voice. Uh, Maybe you saw him on Broadway. He's done a little bit of everything. He's a recording artist, an actor, a producer, and now he's helping other people follow their dreams Tony Vincent is our guest today. Tony, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, Burke. Thanks for having me. When you have an entertainment resume like yours, and you've done so much as an actor, you've been on Broadway, you've you've done The Voice, you've recorded uh, an EP. Uh, When somebody comes up to you in in a cocktail party and they say, hey, nice to meet you, Tony. So what do you do for a living? (laughs) That doesn't all fit on a business card. How do you describe what you do? You know, at the end of the day, I'm an entertainer and I'm a performer, you know, I will always be a songwriter and a music lover at the core. Um, but after 20 years of, of being on Broadway, being the, the father of two children, it's really started to uh, give me an opportunity to sort of take a step back from me being the product and uh, really start investing in what's happening in tomorrow's talent, because I think that there's a really there's a massive gap that's happening out there, especially in the world of musical theater. Um, and uh, and that's where I sort of see um, where I'm, you know, really significant right now in my career trajectory. Tony Vincent, our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast, you talked about being a dad now. When when you were coming up, can you paint a picture of young Tony Vincent? I mean, were you a kid that was in uh, plays and theater and and in school, or, or how did the bug get you? Yeah, I was. Well, I'll tell you how the bug got me is I was four years old. My dad had a really extensive record collection and I heard a Beatles record at four and it literally mystified me. It it captivated me in such a way that there was no way that I couldn't make music part of my career. Um, And sort of the next, I will say, 15 years before I left New Mexico, which is where I grew up, I spent time occupying any kind of stage to be a better performer, to be a better storyteller. And that, you know, I didn't have really these parameters set like, okay, it was cool to do rock and roll only and I can't be an actor. So I was involved in musical theater and battle of the bands and, you know, producing my friends records and writing songs in my, you know, my, my bedroom. And so I, I basically wore a lot of different hats just to be the best possible performer that I could be. Did you have entertainers in your family? My father owned an ad agency for about, 40 years uh, in the Southwest. It was was pretty large. And so like just the kind of the concept of entertainment and branding before it became a kind of a, a catch-all phrase over the last like 25 years, like that's what I was raised on. I knew that that even though I was a, you know, desired to be a solo artist or be a, a you know, a front man of a band that I was kind of the product. I, I could separate myself from that. And I think that that, you know, sort of ideology at such a young age kind of separated me from the rest of my friends and and really kind of gave me a leg up. You know, I'm trying to picture this in my head, the young Tony Vincent. And, and it's funny, everything has a, uh, 
a pop culture connection. So at first I'm thinking, okay, he grew up in New Mexico. So it's kind of a Walter White breaking bad thing. But now <laughs> it's your dad and Don Draper from Mad Men. He owned an ad agency. It was a very, it was, yes. Minus, minus the drugs. It was, uh, it was just <laughs> like that. My, you know, it was just like that for me, actually. Brothers and sisters or just you? Yeah. Sister, um, 18 months younger, we grew up singing together and she chose to not pursue entertainment as a career, but she's still in advertising. It's, it's, you know, she sort of took the baton from my father. They actually worked together and sort of owned a boutique agency for a while. And then she sort of went on her own. Went into the family business. Yes. But I knew that that was not my, my, my journey at all. So at what age did you go uh, and, and make a, a you know a conscious decision this is what i'm going to do for a living there is no plan b this is what i'm going to do well i mean it sounds ridiculous to say you're four years old and i knew that music would be what i pursued but it, it it really wasn't very different from that i mean i always knew that whether i was taking drum lessons at age seven or starting to play keyboards at age 12 i knew that this would just be what i did it just felt like it resonated within my core Although I did go to university and studied business, um, what I did to sort of appease my father was I found a, a, an amazing school actually here in Nashville, Tennessee called Belmont, which had a really, really cutting edge program called music business. And so I studied things like copyright law and music publishing and finance and accounting and management and everything that pretty much goes on behind the artist because I knew that I would be that artist and I kind of wanted to just have a real firm grasp of what I was getting into before I got manipulated by the machine. <laughs> well, that yeah. doesn't happen in the music business. Are Never. You and it hasn't happened to me either. <laughs> so, <laughs> but at least, I, but at least I know when I'm kind of getting screwed over, you know, that's right. You saw it coming, right? You, yeah. I'm, I'm like, like you wait, you put the, you, you know, you grab your yellow pad and you a and B the situation. You're like, okay, in this situation, I'll take one for the team. That's right. I'll take it just this much. Just uh, this Tony much. Vincent is our guest today. So, so you're in Nashville. You go to Belmont, which you know it does have a great, uh, at least within music circles, this great reputation as yep. a music industry school. Totally. Um, I, I'm going to ask you to to name drop. Who did you go to school with that we may know today? Well, funny enough, it, it, the famous people that I went to school with. I didn't really solidify when I went to Belmont because I show up on campus with like synthesizers and stuff that technologically was pretty far advanced for students who were drawn to that school at the time. Like keep in mind, this is back in the early nineties. Yeah. Everybody else came with a guitar on their back. And I was like, this is not exactly my scene. It, it actually wound up working to my advantage, but to kind of go back a few years, my high school where I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico had massive talent come out of it, especially in the world of, of theater and acting. I graduated with Neil Patrick Harris. Wow. Um, an actor named Freddie Prince Jr. came out of my high school. No uh, kidding. I mean, Terry Kahn, who's been in uh, several soap operas, and I think her and her husband uh, have a pretty big following. I, I don't know if it's Home Shopping Network or something, but anyway, there's there's been like eight serious heavy hitter actors that have come oh um jesse tyler ferguson from uh, modern family like these are like guys that i grew up acting with so it was an odd time of of talent to to occupy in this the strangest space of albuquerque you know you know one of my favorite stand-up comics and he's a great podcaster mark Marin is also an albuquerque guy and he talks a lot right? about how albuquerque helped sort of to frame him up before he got into stand-up absolutely um, yeah 
so there's sure a lot of material from, from New Mexico. <laughs> I can <laughs> imagine. Um, so you then are in Nashville. You are the yin to their yang. You zig when everybody else zags. You're not wearing so. a hat, I'm assuming. There are no, no boots. There's no guitar strapped over your back. Are you a, uh, a pop kid or you're a rock kid? No, I, I'm, a, I'm a very English pop and English rock guy. I mean, when I... I grew up uh, pretty aggressive rock and roll, heavy metal back in the 80s uh, and then just got really attracted to British synthesis and Depeche Mode and bands like The Cure and Erasure and that sort of thing. So although I do play guitar now, the sounds of, of those mid 80s to early 90s still occupy how I how I look at records. And so uh, let's fast forward to after college. Yep. At what point did you go? All right. I've done Nashville. Yep. I want to take a swing at, at New York. Did it sure. take me through the timeline of it all? Yeah. So when I got to Nashville, this was in the fall of 1991. I actually wound up getting a major label record deal with EMI during the fall of my second year at university. So I lived here in Nashville until 1997. And that at that point, I had done two records. I had had six number one radio singles. And I just felt that, and this, keep in mind, Nashville is a very different town now than it was, but I just felt like I was tired of trying to find my core group of people, or at least the kind of group of people that would make me a better artist. And so because I had been so influenced by England and, and UK and specifically like Manchester and London culture, I figured New York would be the closest I could get to London because I couldn't really figure out a way I had to live in London yet. Right. So I moved to New York and and really the, the goal was to find a more aggressive rock deal, you know, a proper recording deal. Um, and while I did achieve that about two and a half years later after um, moving there with with Epic, which is a, a an arm of Sony Records, um, I landed the first national tour of a, a show called Rent three weeks after I moved there. And I was like I was so excited to move to New York and pretty much right when I got there. I hit the road and uh, start basically doing professional theater and then returning to Broadway for my first show nine months later. So, so I got to stop you right now because uh, Tony Vincent, by the way, is our guest on, on the Big Time Talker podcast because uh, people who are listening right now are either going to want to hug you or, or strangle kick me in you. The face. <laughs> so did I get this correct that, that you were in Nashville for just over a year and you got offered a, a record deal? That's correct. Yes. You were in New York City for a grand total of, what did you say, three weeks? And you about, got a part of Yeah, rent. about three, three and a half weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going with the kick you in the face piece yeah. at this point. That's um, okay. When, when you're a college kid yeah. and, and you get offered this record deal, and there are people in that town who have struggled for 20, 30 years to try to make something happen. Sure. Did, did it dawn on you at that time, Tony, that that I've grabbed the golden ticket here? Or were you just sort of young and full of yourself and you thought, ah, this is all easy? No, I've never thought it was all easy. Um, I just, I, I grew up in a pretty disciplined lifestyle as a child and I knew what I wanted and I worked tirelessly. Um, I knew I was like nobody else here. And like I mentioned, I think, you know, a little bit earlier, the music that I did was like nothing in Nashville at the time. And that was, I mean, that really worked to my advantage that that's the only way that I can say the timeline happened in the way it did because, um, and, and sort of also who, you know, I, I knew that 
going to school, I needed a really killer attorney that was really hooked up with a lot of history. And so, you know, I can, I can put it somewhat on my shoulders, but I also say at that time, you know, the industry was very different, you know, find, basically find a very expensive (laughs) attorney to, to shop a record for you. It doesn't work like that now, but that's how it happened then. That's a pretty amazing story. Tony Vincent is our guest today. Tony now helps emerging artists uh, find their way through uh, the maze that is the entertainment business. And he is the leader of the PCG Theatrical uh, there in Nashville, which is a, an artist development program. They also take that on the road to try to help uh, folks as well. And we're going to talk about one of those upcoming events in a second. So then you get to New York and... Yeah. And you're cast in rent in three weeks. So sort of the same question, the other side of the coin, there are people there who have been, you know, singing at the Stardust Diner in Times Square, and right. they're like 60 years old and, and gotten <laughs> never outside the French fry frying and singing there. And you, you're you in rent, rent for Christ's sake. I will tell weeks. you, this is another thing. I mean, it, it kind of goes back to the who you know thing. I, I Before I moved there, because I knew that that's where I was heading, I, I set up a lot of appointments with entertainment attorneys to meet them to see if that we would be in sync if I could be a potential client of theirs Um, I literally went and took a meeting with an attorney that I thought I was supposed to meet with he thought I was a client that he was going to meet with but I was not him and it was like the sort of the, the this sort of planetary alignment thing of where I wind up in this guy's office he thinks he's seeing somebody else so do I and funny enough the guy who I wound up working with for about 13, 15 years as an attorney represented three of the original cast members of Rent. And that's, how I, and that's how I got an audition. So I didn't get like a leg up in the sense of I didn't have to audition and I just got the role. I had to audition just like everybody else. However, you go to New York, you usually don't get an opportunity like this to audition for a, a, you know, a full production contract kind of a show. Sure. Unless you have an equity card. And I didn't. I just moved there, you know, with the love of music and, you know, a, sort of a history of successful record making. I want to hit on a couple of these things that you've done in your career. Tony Vincent, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. He's a Broadway vet and uh, has had a whole bunch of number one hit singles as well. You were in Jesus Christ Superstar, one of the revivals of that, played Judas Iscariot. Give me a memory from that show for you. That was a huge career move for me. Actually, that is actually what nailed me the record deal with Sony. Because when you're on Broadway, you you have eight performances a night. So, I mean, excuse me, eight performances a week. There's no way you can like try to play out in the city or showcase or anything like that. So we wound up using that show as a platform to court record companies. But the, what was really, really special about that was that Originally, I was cast in the role of Simon Zealots, and he has a couple of really kind of big torch vocals. Um, But during the previews of that show, and I'm not sure if your listeners will know about this, but before a a show actually officially opens on Broadway, they have about a three to four week period called the preview period. And that's where they're still selling tickets at full price and audience members come and they basically, if they see a show on a Monday night, they may see a completely different sort of structure on a Thursday night, especially if the show is brand new and right out of the gate where you have the kind of flexibility to to kind of see what's working and what's not and to kind of you know smooth the rough parts out of a show before it properly opens. And then it's reviewed in like the New York Times and Variety and that sort of thing. So during this 
three and a half, four week period of previews, the guy who was cast as Judas was this rock singer out of LA, but had never done any theater and never had done an eight show week in his life. And he totally destroyed his voice within the Blew first- Blew his voice up. Yeah, with, and if you know anything about the Judas role, it's like probably one of the most taxing vocal roles in any, you know, for any male uh, actor. And, uh, and he just blew his voice out. Now, at that time, I was telling you that I was cast as, as Simon Zealots. Um, I, yeah. I understood Jesus at that point, not Judas, but Andrew Lloyd Webber, who obviously is the, the composer um, of the show. And this was his first show that became a real big hit. And it was the first one that ever actually appeared on Broadway for him. He was going to bring his entire company, and they're called Really Useful Group, out of London all the way to New York. So this is about 160 people that he was going to fly over for opening night. And he basically saw what was going down. He said, fire that Judas, hire the guy who's playing Simon Zealots. I'm out of here. I'm bringing my people over here. You deal with the fallout. <laughs> so I, I, I basically got the role of Judas a week before we officially opened. Now, were you in the, the movie? I well? was, I was. And that actually was shot before the Broadway show. And that's, I was Simon Zealot in the film. And they said, hey, do you want to come back to New York and do it on Broadway? And I would have been a fool to say no, especially in this, you know, later date. Wow. You also yeah. did the Green Day show, American Idiot, which I never got a chance to see, but you had a key role in that as well. Yeah, that probably one of the most satisfying pieces of theater I've ever done because it was, at that time, I mean, very unconventional. I mean, it was unapologetically rock and roll. I mean, it was very, very in your face. It was 90 minutes from front to back. There was no intermission. Uh, the set was probably 50 or 60 feet high. It almost felt like it was coming on top of the audience. Um, you know, Green Day was our band in the studio. We actually spent six weeks making a cast album. And I, I encourage anybody if, who missed that show if they love Green Day or even if they don't, get the cast album of American Idiot because it is something that is just spectacular. It's riveting. The instruments are sound incredible. Vocals are killer. Um, it's a very moving piece of theater if you ever get a chance to see it. And you actually did the, uh, did I understand that correctly? You, you recorded the cast album with the three guys from Green Day. They were in studio. Yeah, they were, they were our core band. And then we had, you know, strings that came in. We had our, our, our band that was our stage band come in and do get, like guitar overdubs and keyboard overdubs. And uh, what, what I kind of <laughs> think is pretty funny. I have to really credit Billy Joe because he's the one who basically said it's, this is the guy who needs to be St. Jimmy. Um, after tickets started to dip, this is about nine months into the run, the producers came to me and they said, look, Tone, we've got to do something. We're not selling tickets like we thought we would at this point. We need to do something. And that something is we need to bring Billy Joe in to play St. Jimmy, which was my role. And at that sure. point, nine months into a run, I was like, I was screaming my face off eight times a week. I was so glad they came to me and said that. But now I can say that, you know what? I opened uh, American Idiot and Billy Joe Armstrong was my understudy. I like that. I like the way you <laughs> position that. That's well done. So Tony Vincent is our guest today in the Big Time Talker podcast. And he does have Billy Joe Armstrong's home cell phone number. Um, he's not going to give it out on this program. Not on this program. No. <clears throat> you also got to a chance to work in, in London on the West End. And, you know, uh, we Americans always hear about theater in London and how great yeah. it is. What was that experience like? Can you put it into words and sort of compare and contrast that in Broadway? Sure. The, the cool thing about theater in London is that it's almost treated as like 
almost a lovely evening of like going to see a movie, dinner and a movie with your, you know, with your partner. It's it it's that accessible, and it's such a cultural accepted thing. It's you know they don't have tickets like for Hamilton going for one or two thousand dollars a pop. It's really accessible to what they call the everyday punter the consume the everyday consumer and so that right there brings a completely different audience in it's not highbrow um like new york although i believe that the the acting talent in london is just riveting it's it's monumental i mean from judy dench to i mean all of these historical figures anthony hopkins that all started on you know doing straight plays on you know london theater on the west end but the coolest thing was is that i got a chance to work with with queen and um, so the show that I, I did with them was called We Will Rock You. And it, it wound up becoming, I think, the fourth or fifth longest running show on the West End. I think it ran for 16 or 17 years. And this is back, I, I opened it in 2002. And what was so fa fabulous for me as a, as a musician was that the critics hated the show. They literally <laughs> completely trashed it. But because Queen believes in who they are and their audience is relentless uh they took me on the road and i became their their freddie mercury before adam lambert did and um it basically was the the band's desire to not allow the critics to control the future of that show so i wound up performing with them in, including um the uh the golden jubilee when queen elizabeth hit the throne at 50 years so i'm sharing the stage of like Good Lord, Annie Lennox and Phil Collins and Ozzy Osbourne and Eric Clapton. And I finally get a chance to meet Paul McCartney after the show. I mean, it was just absolutely like bonkers experience, totally unplanned. Couldn't have happened if you tried. So when you're in a room <laughs> like that. What's that? When you're in a room like that, mm. do, you, um, do you ever become that kid from Albuquerque, New Mexico and go, I can't believe this is happening. I'm talking to Paul McCartney right now, trying to form two words uh, to string together or er Eric Clapton is across the room or I'm right. singing on stage with Brian May and Queen. I mean, is there is there any, you know, semblance of that kid in Albuquerque who, who just can't imagine that this has become his life? I think some of it, yeah. I think the other thing is that I just feel... I feel so blessed that I get to do this at 48 years old still that I, I think that that's kind of what's kept me loving this so deeply and, and sort of why I'm shifting gears into really investing in tomorrow's young people, especially people that want to take the stage and, and be great storytellers and really be great communicators to move their audience because life is hard. And if you can take someone in an audience and remove them from their own reality for two or two and a half hours and, and challenge them to think different and maybe move their heart in a different way, then our job is kind of done. Tony Vincent, our guest today, and he's given us a little of his background. What he does now is lead PCG Theatrical. They're an artist development uh, program. He's based in Nashville. He has a recording studio there. And, and it's specifically designed for people who are on their way up that want to learn how to, to do it. And it may be a different skill level. And he works, uh, I think, specifically with musical theater performers. In today's world, we all sort of think about um, these, these young people who you see on 
American Idol or America's Got Talent or The Voice. You were a contestant on The Voice. Yeah. Um, as as sort of the launching pad to careers. And those those shows have been around since the beginning of television with sure. Arthur Godfrey and Talent Scouts and all that. Yeah. If if you were going to advise someone who you thought had uh, some talent, you know, early on, would mm-hmm. you recommend to them that they try to get on The Voice or American Idol or AGT? Is that a good way to go? Well, I mean, I, I did it, so it's hard for me to, to, to poo-poo it at this point. I will say this, that when I started making records in you know, the mid-90s, it was a very different landscape now than it is now. You know, social media did not rule the world. What what was happening on right. YouTube didn't exist. What you know, how many followers you had on your Instagram feed is just it, it didn't matter because it a it didn't exist. So when you talk about shows like America's Got Talent or Idol or The Voice or something like that, you can't deny the power of television and you know, twenty million people seeing your face every week, even if it's just one week. I, I would always encourage somebody to just take risks. And if they think that, you know, an option like one of those sort of talent shows is the way to go, I would absolutely encourage it. But I would absolutely make sure that you are so dialed in to what you do and you're so on point and you're so well rehearsed. And um, there's a lot of work that I think needs to go on with the, with the creative person's persona their brand their branding before they ever start entertaining that idea um which is another reason that i do this because i think that sort of fine tuning is really crucial if you want to do this in a serious way especially that that the minutia really matters whether your their audience can put their finger on it or not um you've got to be better than great and you have to sort of have that special thing that only you do and sometimes you only find that out by working with someone who's sort of been vetted and has done this before. So I can't, I would absolutely say yes, depending on your certain circumstance. I mean, I did it. I tried. The reason that I did the voice was because I had just come off of 17 years of Broadway and I wanted to return to be a recording artist. And I thought that doing that show would kind of break the stigma that I'm just a musical theater performer and actor. Unfortunately, what they did was they, they told my story as a theater actor with Green Day, and it didn't exactly do what I thought it would do. But, you know, I, I would have I wouldn't have changed, you know, doing the show or not at this point. No. How far did you get of the voice? I was one of the finalists. I mean, I was one of Stilo's last people. So there are a lot of misconceptions, I think, about those shows. I actually just work with a, a finalist on the voice from this past season. Um what might surprise people who are listening right now about what really goes on behind the scenes? So for example, are you, are you hanging out at CeeLo's house and kicking it with him, you know, three, four times a week when you're on that show? Um, well, <laughs> I sort of have a funny story. I, so I'm actually two years older than CeeLo. All right. So when we got together and we didn't know each other before the show, we found that we had worked with so many of the same people, we became like instant friends. Now, for a television producer of The Voice, that's not the kind of client or talent that you want to show. You don't want to right. have a, you know, a kid. I look younger than I, than I am in age. And so you, you don't want to have somebody who's 
chummy with their, their coach and you know he's bringing them bottles of you know his favorite Zinfandel and talking with Babyface and we're like talking about when the last time we went to Napa Valley and all of that that's not that's not good television for the boys that's right that's you know? not what they're so, looking for they want no, the come from so, behind story so I think that's one of the reasons that that CeeLo said it's it's time for me to go because I think he was getting some heat from from upstairs um so your story yeah. is very different in that re regard because it really is. They look for those those impoverished backstories and the hard luck stories uh, that they can yeah. build out on those shows, right? Yeah, mine didn't really fit the mold that they wanted to tell. Um, but now I have a you know a great relationship with him, and and we actually have done several sort of creative shows, uh, you know, after the voice. But you normally, are. no, you don't go over to CeeLo's house and you, you don't go over to your and you really don't know these guys very closely, you know, whether it's, you know, Adam Levine or, or anybody else. I mean, Blake Shelton might be different because he's kind of Nashville and kind of that hometown kind of guy. But I don't know him from from Adam. So and I don't mean Adam Levine. I mean, you know, <laughs> I see what you did there. Adam, um, Adam the first. Yeah, you you make it sound and I don't I know you didn't do this intentionally, Tony, but you make it sound pretty darn easy. I mean, that, that you certainly worked really hard to get where you are, but things came easier. You're into college, you get a record deal. You go to New York in three weeks, you're doing Rent, and then it's Jesus Christ Superstar, and then it's American Idiot with Green Day, and you've released six number one uh, singles. I think it's probably important if you can, can give our listeners some of the obstacles and challenges yeah. you had to overcome, because it doesn't come easy. No, it doesn't come easy. Um, it, it, I know it sounds a little bit ridiculous that I'm saying that, um, but I, I led a very blessed journey for sure. Um, but I worked relentlessly. Like I, I didn't stop and I didn't have vocal training. I didn't have really a lot of money to do private vocal instruction. And so my, my vocal teaching was listening to rock records and listening to the Beatles and and tears for fears and the rolling stones and like that's how i learned to sing and i learned to play piano by listening to records and playing by ear and i mean that though is a little bit of a musical gift because both of my grandmothers were performers um my my mother's mother played guitar my nana my on my father's side she sang for big bands and that sort of thing so there was a musical thing that was happening in my family Right. You know, that gave me a little bit of this isn't just, you know, because I heard a Beatles record. It was because I also could sing really well. So it's a combination of all those things and just tirelessness about, you know, going to rehearsals all the damn time growing up. And it didn't matter if it was community theater or theater at school or rehearsals with a band. Um, I just, you know, I didn't do anything but sing and, and kept my grades you know, above water, you know, I was a, a strong B student, you know, I didn't, but, but school wasn't my, you know, it was basically like, let me just get through school so that I can do rock and roll. It, someone who's listening right now, who's thinking about doing this for a living and you coach people full-time now yes, with your artist development program. Um, what are the big obstacles and challenges to overcome uh, for someone who's, who's really considering doing this for a living? Um, one thing, it's a, one thing that's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Somebody who has a laptop think with a microphone and an, you know, an audio interface, they think they can make a record. Now, sometimes that happens where it just, you know, luck happens and, 
and it's a little bit easier to make a record in your bedroom, especially if you're dealing with sample driven stuff like hip hop or R&B or rap. But the thing that you miss is the education from someone who's actually been making records for a significant period of time. And so I think that kids think that they can become a musician because there's all this software out there that can help you kind of piece together songs. And then you think you're a recording artist and it, it can look like that at face value, but that's not how it is. It's, I think it's a big myth and it's, it's, it, while that it, uh, you know, it opens up a lot of creative opportunities for kids. It also, I think is very misleading because they think that if they can just put a beat together and some sort of rap on top of it, that that makes them an artist. It's a very fine line of what that is to me. Um, so I think that that is a, 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 a sort of a dangerous slope to find yourself in. Um, that being said, I mean, I was say I was, I was mowing hundreds of lawns every summer just so that I could buy my first synthesizer. Right. You know, um, you know, my work ethic is really relentless and it didn't matter what it took. I mean, now you can spend, you know, I don't know, two grand on a laptop and, and you have some more software than I could have ever imagined, you know, it didn't even exist back in the 90s. But I, I just think that the thing that you're going to have to find as an artist, and I mean, when I say artist, I mean musician, singer, actor, you've got to find yourself around people that you can learn from at all times to watch the good ones and to watch the bad ones. I mean, you, you learn just the same from watching really crap theater in front of That's you. That's right, sure. Like, shit, I wouldn't have done that. Ooh, that was yeah. a bad choice. Yeah, you know, yeah. I so, um, and the same thing with music. Like, you know, he may not be the greatest singer, but there's something about him that like really moves me or is gripping or fascinating. Like some people love Tom York's voice from Radiohead. I think he's absolutely brilliant, but he has one of these voices that I know that it turns a lot of people off, but that doesn't matter because nobody sounds like Tom. And that's what I think people need to concentrate on instead of just, and this is a bit, this is, I think the, the real point that I'm have now sort of looped back in. People are doing it for fame and not for the material or the music. They're, I think the total reason they're doing it is fucked up. And I think that's, what's going to hold people back in their career if they're doing it just for fame this is uh you're gonna be you know be very disappointed or if you have any success it's going to be very short-lived you've been around a whole bunch of famous people and i have too and fame in and of itself is bad juju bad that, juju you bet you know, if that's yeah. why you're there, there there is no good that will come of that it's actually a byproduct for most people of, of them being really talented but yeah if, if, if you're fishing in that pond you're going to get nothing but sharks and piranhas. And I said, you know, and then you, you look on what's happening on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and it's looking like, you know, everybody's leading this glamorous life. And it's just, it's a myth that people buy into. And this fame thing is just a, I don't know, it's really misleading. And it's going to be very disappointing when people find out it's really not like that. This um this work that you do, Tony, with PCG yeah. Theatrical, this artist development program. Let's say someone comes to you at any age, frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, they could be in their thirties or forties or fifties or whatever, and they go, you know, I, I really want to, I want to take a shot at this. Absolutely. What Absolutely. what is it that you do for them at that point? Sure. Well, at first, I want to find out what they want to do, um, and then I basically take a step back and see where their strengths and weaknesses are. 
and it gives me basically a, a you know a blank canvas to try to you know i'm a big performance coach i'm great at storytelling i'm really well at sort of pulling that out of people um if they need to go have more vocal instruction i have a team of people around me that are great whether they need vocal instruction or more like really sort of core acting components because while i'm an actor i have a lot of better teachers around me than me when it comes to acting but as a performer i'm really really good and so i'm able to kind of piece what they need around that individual talent so there's no cookie cutter situation with pcg theatrical everybody is treated as an individual um, the prescription of what they need and how to make their talent blossom and grow and continue to develop, every prescription is different. Um, the, the, the mentor that I kind of worked from, I mean, he kind of calls himself a doctor in that aspect. And um, his name is Bernard Porter. And, and I've learned a lot from him on how to approach this um, in a much more individualized way as opposed to, oh, well, they need this, this, and this. And so this person needs this, this, and this, and it all looks the same. But that's not the case because everybody is you know, has certain talents that are stronger in areas than others and, and weaker in areas than others. There's no way, I guess, to, to do sort of the McDonald's approach to what you do, because everybody brings something different. How important, though, is, and you've hit on this a couple of times, and I think it's really important for the person to have, uh, he, she, uh, to, to have a uniqueness about them that separates them out from everybody else. Is that really important in your estimation? I think it's important, but I also think that even if they haven't discovered that thing, and, and it's, sometimes it's very hard to, like I had mentioned initially, unless you have an outside source to kind of help you get there, you may not realize what makes you unique. You may not like your uniqueness for all I right, know. Right. And that's actually very, very difficult. You know, I mean, I wish I was a better, better guitar player than I am. Um, I could continue to, to be, you know, in study and, and be a better guitar player. But what I'm known for is the way I sing and, you know, I wish sometimes I sang differently and, you know, was a bit more something. I mean, I could name six different adjectives, but I'm not. And so I have to like really know after all these years of singing, there's certain things that I do that nobody else does. And I feel really fortunate and people point that out to me. And, you know, sometimes I, I like that and sometimes I don't, but it, it, it continues to allow me to work and grow and, you know, I'm still a student. I learned from from young and old people that I work with every single day. I'm, you know, I'm the perpetual student. And um, so not only do I get a chance to move people closer to their dreams, you make me a better talent when I get to work with you. You're doing something that's really cool. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, on the Big Time Talker podcast. You're going back to my home state that I love very much, West Virginia, and West Virginia is, because of its geography, is as much as anything else, is a very sort of uh, enclosed, insular place with a yeah. lot of really talented people, a lot of really good-hearted people. But it's also a state that has is, is forever struggled economically. And right. you're actually taking this program back there in conjunction with West Virginia University Parkersburg. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's free or some ridiculously low price to work one-on-one -on -one with uh, with local folks there in West Virginia to help them bring their talent forward and, and give them some hands-on coaching. And I don't have all the details, but I did yeah. hear that you're doing that. So can you kind of paint that picture of what's happening in, in sure. West Virginia? And also if you're going to do it in other places as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, first of all, I do master classes all over the country. I work for, you know, I work with 
public schools. I work with private schools. It, it doesn't matter. I work with just, you know, one-off theater companies. It, it really, if, if we can figure out a way that I can get there and work with their young people, I'm, I'm all in. I just worked with, um, uh, where did I fly out? Like literally one of the cast members reached out to me on Instagram and four days later, I was working with a high school cast of American Idiot. But the one that I'm working with in Parkersburg, we just had a a live uh, virtual sort of teaching session this past weekend, and it was basically to to introduce people to what I did, what I do through PCG Theatrical, which is also the website if you are, are interested in, in checking out what I do and what we do as a company. Um, but we're doing an, an in-person event, like you mentioned. Um, this is Saturday the 25th. Um, it's going to be broken into two different pieces. I believe tickets are actually twenty-five dollars. the The virtual one was was free for people, but the in-person one is a ticketed event. I know that they do offer scholarships in case um, money is tight. Right. And um, and this basically is a chance for me, literally, to address a group of people, and then work one-on-one -on -one with them within that group structure. Because if if you're working with one person, it's an, it's an amazing thing to see with a few tweaks on the audience side, how much a performance can change with very little change. Um, and, and then you basically, as an audience member, if you if you're, uh, have an opportunity to work with me that day or whatever, you know, hopefully everybody builds on what they're learning throughout the whole process. So I believe it's like an hour and a half, then we take a lunch break, and then it's another hour and a half or two on the back end. Um, I believe the date is Saturday, um, June 25, and uh, I'm really, really excited. The, the virtual event was fantastic, and um, yeah, I'm thrilled to be able to do this. So we'll put all the information on how you can sign up in the, the notes for the podcast. Cool. Um, cool. And, and people can find you online how? What is your website if they want to find out more about PCG Theatrical? Yeah, well, it's, it's exactly that's pcgtheatrical.com. That's not, and um, also, I mean, you could go to tonyvincent.com. You can look me up via Instagram. I mean, reach out to me. I'll, I'll definitely direct you to the right location. So listen, I know this is what you do for a living now um, in, in coaching people. So I hesitate to do it, but I would be doing my listeners a disservice if we didn't wrap up by asking you <laughs> what <laughs> advice you would give uh, to someone who's looking to get into this. And, and again, I know that you're paid a lot of money because you've done this very well and done it very successfully. But, but can, you, can you give me a couple of nuggets of free advice to someone, either maybe their parents of a, a child who is, is really interested in this, or maybe there's sure, someone sure. at any age who is interested in getting into music or theater uh, professionally? What, what's the first thing you tell them? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter what your age is. I mean, I've known you know, adult actors who are like, mm, I'm going to try this at 54 and boom, they go to LA, something magical happens and, and they're acting for the next 15 years of their life. So there's no age, you know, parameters, seven years old, 70 years old. But I want to say this because I want there to be some sort of reality in this. Unless it's a fire in your belly like something that you feel that you have got to go for with all your energy, 110%, I wouldn't encourage you to try to do this because it is a ruthless character uh, devaluing kind of industry. 
when you realize that you're kind of the product, it's, it's kind of hard to hear a lot of criticism or to say, you know, to keep hearing no, to keep hearing no, to keep hearing no, you're not this, no, you're not that. It can really destroy a person's core. Um, so unless you are just militant and don't want to really do anything else, that's the kind of reality I would kind of give to somebody who, who lo is looking to do this. If they can see themselves doing something else, something that they really like, then I would choose for them to look at the other option. I think that's great advice because it really is in the entertainment industry. It's a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle and you've got to be committed. And like, you know, when I'm part of a, a Broadway show as a, as a lead male, I sign a 12-month a, a deal. It's the, the smallest amount you can. And because I'm hired to do these male roles that have vocals that sort of sing in the stratosphere, I know that for the next 12 months of my life, I essentially won't have a social life. Because right. the only way to save my voice and perform eight shows a week is to not talk yep. during the daytime. I know that sounds ridiculous to a lot of people, but it's all about like, what are you willing to sacrifice? Well, I'll, I'm willing to sacrifice going out and having a meal with friends for the next 12 months, you know, and hopefully you have an insular kind of small group of people that are there to support you and build you up and that you can text or email. And I'm not saying you have to be like, you can't say 20 words that afternoon, but it's all about respecting your body, staying fit, eating well, hydrate the crap out of your body. I mean, like water nonstop doesn't mean you can't have alcohol, but I mean, you got to really combat your health. You got to really because if you want to do this full on, you have to, in your entire being, do it. Great advice from Tony Vincent. He knows that of which he speaks. You can find out more about his work with young talent at pcgtheatrical.com. And when I say young, I don't mean age-wise. I mean young to the business. Absolutely. You can also find out more at tonyvincent.com. My friend, thank you for spending time with us today. Burke, it's really my pleasure. Thank you. That's Tony Vincent right there on the Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. Wherever you go, whatever you do today, go out and make it a great day. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, everybody.